What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I'm here in our brand new offices in Austin, Texas, and we're here for South by Southwest Interactive this week. Lots of amazing things going on, and you'll find out more how our guest today uh, factors into that. So I have the pleasure of sitting down with, I'm going to just say it up front, Dr. Victoria Romero. She told me that I needed to uh, just call her Victoria. Um, She's the chief scientist at Next Century Corporation, among many things, which we'll get into. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. So the first thing I want to talk a little bit about is you have this title of chief scientist, which is a very cool title. Um, I don't think it probably does justice to all of the things that you do. Uh, but tell us a little bit about you know what a chief scientist at the Next Century Corporation does and maybe a little bit more about what Next Century does as well for the listeners that, are, that may not have heard of them before. Okay. Well, first to t- introduce you to Next Century, um, the motto of the company is software that saves lives. And our founder, John Macbeth, founded the company right after 9-11. He had actually booked himself a ticket onto the plane that hit the Pentagon, and then at the last minute decided to change to a different out- airport to leave. So he has a, a real personal motivation to help national security. And at the time, he was developing apps and doing other sorts of tech work, and he decided that he wanted to point his talents in a place that he felt made a real difference in saving lives. So that's that's the mission of the company, and it's fantastic to work someplace where everyone really feels that mission, and it's, it's real, it's earnest. Um, I'm actually pretty new there. I've only been there since December, so that's only a few months. Um, but one, that's one of the things that drew me to the company. Um, They primarily work on software for the defense and intelligence communities, um, but not exclusively. So we do have software that law enforcement use, that first responders use. Really anything that we feel could, like I said, help save lives is, is within scope for us. Now, as chief scientist, my job, and there are two of us, um, our jobs are to lay out what we see as the R&D vision for the company. So we look at what is currently possible, but we also look at the gaps and needs in those communities and figure out how can we get from here to there. Um, I have a lot of experience working with agencies like DARPA and IARPA and some of the other R&D agencies within the DOD. And... It's really about bringing the innovative, cutting-edge capabilities of academia and industry into places in national security and figure out ways to make them operational and useful for those for that mission. So since you brought it up, thank you for that uh, introduction, by the way. One of the things that you have in your bio is the fact that you are the principal investigator on an effort under DARPA's Memex program to apply some of this cutting-edge data science to mine the dark web for evidence of illicit behavior. Now, that sounds very... Cloak and dagger, intrigue, you know, so I'm guessing it probably was pretty interesting. Tell us a little bit about, you know, that to the degree that you can talk about that. Sure. Um, So this program is actually coming to a conclusion right now. And there were a whole host of companies, um, including Next Century, as well as my previous company, IST. I was actually working on that program under IST, but Next Century had a piece too. We use sex trafficking as the use case, but this would apply to any sort of illicit activity that has to take place online. And the goal is to get past the surface web, so past the stuff that you find when you use Google or Bing, and find the things that are either hidden, 
a little under the surface like bank records or purposely hidden in, in the dark web places that you don't know how to get there unless you're using special methods and special routes. Um, a lot of illicit activity happens there. There's weapons trafficking and sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Um, and all of these things are also related to funding counter-national criminal organizations and terrorist organizations. So there are a lot of implications there, both for human good as well as for national security. Um, it sounds cloak and dagger, but a lot of it's really just hardcore computer science. <laughs> you have to figure out um, how to get into the places where they don't want you to get into. Um, and it's always a bit of an arms race. As soon as you figure out how to get there, they figure out where else to hide. And so it's, it's always a cat and mouse game. Um, but out of that project came um, two different software programs that are actually currently in use by law enforcement. Um, they are things that district attorneys and police officers and investigators can use right now to do both um, lead investigation as well as to build up cases. So it was really gratifying to have district attorney of New York, for example, come in and tell us, you know, here, here is a guy that we caught because of the software that you guys developed, and here are the women that we rescued that were under him, and who knows how many more he would have victimized had he been able to keep operating. So um, that's, we don't often get that kind of really tangible result, at least not that we get to see. So that was really rewarding. That is amazing. I mean, and we don't ever like, you, you get this in your job probably more than I do as the head of marketing at, at my company, but it is nice when you can feel like you are making a difference. I do want to go down, you talked about the data science, and we'll go down that path a little more in a second, but you studied, if I'm not mistaken, cognitive psychology um, in college, and I think you probably use quite a bit of that today in your role. What what headed you down that path? I mean, that's something that is a fairly specific you know, path of psychology and maybe give us a little bit about what it is cognitive psychology for those that don't know, you know, the specific meaning. Okay. Um, cognitive psychology is the study of thought, thought processes. So this is going to include things like memory, learning, um, decision making, kind of the fairly basic cognitive processes. And as to how I got there, um, actually, kind of interesting. I, I recall in college being in a checkout line and seeing a Life magazine. Don't you, they don't make that magazine anymore, I don't think, but a Life magazine. And it had a baby on the front, a little infant. And it was, a, it was a story about the really interesting research they were doing into the cognitive capabilities in infancy. Things like four-month-olds might be able to do addition and understand gravity. And I don't really know, to tell you the truth, what I found so appealing about it, but I did. And, and you know, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And I, from there on out, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I knew that that was what I wanted to study. Um, so when, the, when I graduated from college, I, I went on to graduate school. And my initial intention was actually to study false memory. Um, but I ended up in an infant lab. And I did my work in infant development and my dissertation on infant development. And... I know that that sounds pretty unrelated to what I do right now, but it's all about the basic underlying cognitive processes and how our mind works. And the best way to get a handle on some of that is to study it in babies because that's where it's just starting to develop. 
Well, it's probably a good segue because one of the reasons you are down here, which I alluded to, is you are speaking on a panel with Haroon Ula and Fred Burton and Bob Pearson, who I think you know, and we'll connect the dots there in just a second on what where that came from. Um, but the idea or the, the title of the session that you guys are doing is Countering Hate, and um, it's Understanding and Stopping Extremism. So I know you have a fascinating sort of overlay to what you're doing. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit about you know what your role will be in the panel and what the overall premise is beyond the obvious of countering hate. For this panel, we wanted to focus on youth. So we're looking specifically at the ages from about, I don't know, tweens, maybe 12 to about 25. And not everyone involved in extremism is in that age range, but, but most are. And that's an age when you're most vulnerable. And there's really different motivations for people in that age range than for, than for older folks. Um, and, and I should point out that extremism here doesn't just mean terrorism or um, really even criminal activity, really anything extreme, so any sort of radical behavior. And something that's really interesting about adolescence is that we, we all know adolescents who seem brilliant. They seem, they can win chess championships, they can do very, very smart things and then turn around the next day and do something completely stupid and we do not know how to interpret that it's, it's hard to get our heads around even though we also probably remember doing that ourselves well, I have three kids so I'm smiling because I see that behavior all the time yes it's just sort of I have a 13 year old <laughs> so I'm just entering the stage of the what what were you thinking because you think to yourself they know better and the thing is they do know better but what we know is that the way that the adolescent brain develops the logic parts of your brain absolutely are developing and they're actually developing quite well and they're, and, and they're pretty near their peak by the end of adolescence. Um, but what is not near its peak is the part of your brain that regulates emotion, the part of your brain that regulates self-control. Um, and what is at its peak is the part of your brain that cares most about pure opinion and pure affiliation and is highly attracted to risk and short-term reward. So it's not that adolescents are not logical, and it's not that they don't understand the pros and cons and the risks. It's that those things are not as important to them as, as risk and impressing their peers and having adventures and separating themselves from their parents. Um, Sometimes I worry a little bit when I see efforts to market to or to persuade adolescents that are fear-based or based on explaining risks or logic. I mean, even something as simple as telling them why not to smoke. Honestly, if you know what their brain is like, that just isn't likely to be the way to go for most of them. Of course, every kid's different. There will be exceptions. But for the most part, it won't be effective. And in some cases, it's going to actually backfire and be attractive. And so... When you look at the way I'm going to start the talk tomorrow is showing the pictures of six teenage um, girls from Western countries who left their comfortable middle class homes to be ISIS foreign fighters. That is really hard to get your head around if you're thinking about why would they do that? They know how they treat women. Why would they leave their families? But on the other hand, if you think about the peer influence and the attraction to risk and the need to identify and have a group, it makes a little bit more sense. And I think that just needs to be considered when you think about how to counter this temptation, telling them not to go because it's dangerous and they'll do horrible things to you is not 
likely to be the most effective way, even though it makes sense to us as adults, <laughs> that would seem to be a really good reason not to go. It's, it's not the best reason for them. Yeah, people are not always logical. It's sort of like the, if you drink way too much, you're going to be hung over the next day. And yet many people still drink too much and deal with the repercussions the next day. So um, I'm going to I do want to get to the U.S. Marketing Communications College. But I do want to ask you a question first, which feels like it's more logical based on what you were just saying. So you've, I think, been involved in some way, shape or form over the last many years in fighting, you know, um, terrorism, extremism, you know, exploring the dark web. How have things changed over the last, what has that been, I guess, 16 years, 17 years? And in particular, you mentioned earlier applying data science and I think neuroscience, which not to say that that wasn't applied before, but first of all, we have much greater capabilities, much better processing power, cloud, you know, all those good things, much better data, you know, pools. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, how have things changed over the last uh, 16, 17 years and, you know, what gets you excited about some of the changes that maybe you're making more of a difference now than you were able to before? Let's see. In terms of what's changed in neuroscience, um, I think you're absolutely right that the ability to collect data has become a lot easier and become um, probably most importantly possible to do outside of a lab. Um, there's still some things like MRIs and PET scans that you're not going to be able to do outside of a lab, but there's been, in the last five or six years, a lot of improvements in the ability to get um, EEG, but in particular FNIRS measurements outside of the lab. Um, FNIRS is, stands for Near Infrared Spectrometry, and it's when you measure the brain activity, um, usually in the frontal lobe. and this is something that um, I've known folks that have been taking it out into the field. They've been working with people on the ground in Jordan, even even in occasion in, in combat zones. Um, and it gives you an ability that it just it didn't exist before. Um, there used to be claims of these one electrode systems, but they, they weren't very effective. Um, that has opened up a lot of interesting ways to study things in the real populations instead of having to extrapolate from you know, your typical college student population, which is cheap and willing, but not necessarily who, who you're interested in understanding for some of these issues. Um, I will say that I think that neuroscience has had some swings in terms of its credibility. Um, the first time that I myself ran one of these studies, um, I was running full EEGs with the caps and, and you know, the full computer setup. Um, on Pashtun migrant workers in Dubai. And in the early days of what they were calling neuromarketing, the, the algorithms and the transparency weren't there. So I, even though I think that there was a lot of good stuff coming out of it, I don't know about the credibility. Um, that's gotten better. Some, some groups now are a lot more transparent. They let you get into the data and see what they're really doing. And then that allows you to have a lot more confidence in, in the work that you're doing. So um, I've had several projects that worked with both EEG, MRI. I've worked with universities. I've worked with pri private groups. Um, and I think that we are learning the limitations as well as the advantages. And I think understanding the limitations is just as important. Um, I don't like when I see stuff get out there that's way overblown. I, I get concerned that it's going to ruin the credibility for the stuff that's done properly. Um, so that's one of my reservations. Um, as far as the rest of the field, I'll admit I've only been in it 10 years, so I can't speak to the first six of the 16 you're asking. Um, but I think that there's 
there was initially a lot of interest in bringing in marketing and social science following 9-11. And then there was some disillusionment because we couldn't solve everything right away. Um, but I think that we've now gotten past that disillusionment and back to a place where people understand that social science is important, but at a realistic level. And they understand how truly complex it is. And, you know, people are not engineering systems. You can't turn knobs and predict exactly what's going to happen. And that's not necessarily easy for all the engineers in the national security research programs to, to understand. It just works differently. Um, you also have a lot of limitations on what you can do in terms of research because you're dealing with people and you can't just do anything you want to people. There's there's ethical considerations. And so those things make it more difficult. And I think it took some time for the community to catch up with that. But I think that we're getting there. There are several now um, large ongoing social science programs inside of DARPA that are focusing on, on these sorts of issues and take all of those concerns seriously and really do understand the complexity of, of the human mind. Um, and I think that's that's something that we've advanced in. So one of the things you did touch upon, and we had mentioned it before, was you know this um, U.S. Marketing Communications College, which I think that's where you met Bob and Harun Ula, who's one of your panelists, and I know Gary Briggs, who's the CMO of Facebook, and Kip Knight, who's the president of H&R Block, who's spoken here before. You know, I think that applies a little bit of what you're talking about, but talk about the program and sort of what got you interested in joining. Um, sure. I, I met Kip um, years ago when I was working at a marketing consultancy, and he and Ed Tazia, who's also sort of along with Kip, one of the, the co-founders of the college, um, invited me to, to participate. And I will say I'm a little bit of an outlier. I'm the only one in there who's not a real marketer. So I'm in there with a bunch of real you know, high-powered, high-powered marketing guys, and then there's me, the former I might psychology professor. You know professor. more as a guy that's a marketer. It's that psychology that really is maybe the most telling and the most interesting, and the way we're going to learn the most about you know our subjects at the end of the day. I think we all learn a lot from each other. I know I've learned a lot from Bob. I've learned a lot from all the guys um, and women, and. Initially, the marketing college was designed um, primarily for the State Department, um, specifically for the foreign service officers who are typically people with really great political science backgrounds. I mean, they really understand policy. They really understand diplomacy. Um, but they don't know a lot about how to message. You know, not, not much training in strategic communication or the psychology underlying it. Um, you know, things like branding and or even some of the in the early years, even some of the real basic social media strategies were, were really all news for them. So we would go into um, into the State Department two or three times a year and teach folks some of the things that marketers know about how to put brands together and how to have consistent messaging. I would talk about the psychological principles of persuasion and influence, and then we'd have folks like Gary who would come in and, and just teach us all about all these really interesting things you could do with Facebook that we had no idea even though we're on it every day. Um, and so it, it grew from there um, to now include sessions that we've done for Facebook. Um, Facebook has um, a, a very serious counter hate um, 
program that we've provided some of this training for on occasion. Um, and it's moved into some of the other areas within within government, but the, we tailor it for the specific audiences, but the gist is the same. The idea is that we're working with people who are really smart, but who are often being asked to do something that they weren't trained for because it's something that didn't even really exist when they were coming up um, you know, through their education and training for these, for these roles. Um, the State Department folks are additionally challenged because they often are just sort of out there at this outpost with not a lot of support, not a lot of budget. You know, you, you think a lot about the ones in a place like Pakistan or Egypt, but there's also folks out there in, you know, Fiji and islands in, in Africa that folks don't even know exist. And, and sometimes it's just one or two of them, and they really need all the support they can get. And I've always really admired... Um, Kip and Ed and, and the rest of the, the folks that contribute because um, it's all pro bono for them. And I live in DC, so for me, I can drive over, I can do a class for a few hours, but everyone else is flying in and giving up a whole week of their time. And I know that the, for, for these folks, that's, that's not trivial, that's pretty difficult. And they do it because they think that it's the right thing well, to do. And I think based on what I know from Bob, it sounds like it's making a difference. So. Um... Thank you for contributing and helping uh, us fight the good fight. This is where we'll shift gears a little bit to a little lighter topic, and it's a little more about you. Um, and I know the first question is one that you said you were sort of dreading, but most people dread the last question because they can never figure out how to answer it. But I do like to ask my guests to tell us something about themselves that people don't know. I know. So I did think of something, <laughs> and I'm not sure who knows this. Um, if I hadn't followed this route in my career, the other thing I really wanted to do was work for Sesame Street. So I guess that kind of ties in with my yeah, very Yeah, that's a little early. bit of a, you know, a hard <laughs> left turn. Yes, but it would have been a really different career um, in a lot of ways. Although, I also think about that sometimes. Uh, as a big fan of Sesame yeah. Street, you also love brisket. You get to try some La Barbecue brisket. You said just a little bit, but you did, uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to spoil my appetite for dinner, but um, uh, my husband told me that if I didn't either go to La Barbecue or Franklin, that he'd be Well, and Franklin, unfortunately, <laughs> it's fantastic, but it's a three to five hour wait every single day, so. Yeah. And uh, did not know. Oh, that's true. Mondays, it is closed. <laughs> it is closed. Aaron and Stacy are pretty religious about that, so. Um, the second question is just to find out what the smart people in the world are reading and to share that with the listeners, so. Is there a book or two, you know, it could be business, it could be history that you've read that you, it inspired you that you'd like to share with the audience? So this is actually a harder question than I expected because I realized, I feel like I read all the time, but I realized I don't read books. I read articles and magazines. Um, so I read, I read Scientific American cover to cover religiously. It's always sitting on my breakfast table. Um, but there is a book I read recently, and I'm going to have to... I always get the name of it a little bit wrong. Um, I think it's called 168 Hours. And the the gist of this book is that um, on the surface, it looks like a time management book, but it's not exactly. Because when I bought it, I, I thought it was going to tell me how to organize my time, how to make checklists and do things that would make me feel like I had more time. But it's actually a lot more philosophical than that. And it has a little bit of that, but it makes the greater point that, you know, Everybody has the same amount of time. It's one of those very few things that no matter how rich or how poor, how old or young, you have the same amount of time in a day, the same number of hours in a week. 
And why is it that some people seem to be able to run marathons and run companies and raise families and have hobbies and others of us <laughs> feel like we're running around with chickens with our head cut off? Um, so it was really enlightening reading it. It had some really interesting, I think in particular for working mothers, some really interesting material about um, how housewives traditionally had spent their time. And I guess I had always assumed that they spent a lot of time with their kids, playing with their kids. And they have these time diaries from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that's actually not true. And today's working mother barely spends less time with her children than those mothers did. And the difference, what's what's dropped, something has to drop, but what's dropped was not time with the kids. Um, what's dropped is things like um, almost seeming like made up housework, things like ironing sheets and cakes that take seven hours to make and, and, and things that, if that's what dropped, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with that not You're being- Greeting your husband um, at the door with time. a uh, fresh drink, right? <laughs> right, right. It was, it was really enlightening to read that, um, there have been differences in how women have, have changed in spending their time, but that the guilt that a lot of us feel right now that we're not spending more time playing with the kids and spending time with the kids, it's we're not really doing less than before. So that that and the idea that, look, everybody's got the same amount of time. And when you say you don't have time to do something, it's not really that you don't have time, it's that you're choosing something else. And this sort of a mindset shift that I think really did make me feel more comfortable with how I'm spending my time. And what's odd is that even though I don't think I'm doing any less, I don't feel as hurried. And I can't, as a psychologist, I should be able to explain Sometimes that, just moving things from the <laughs> subconscious to the conscious mind can make a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. So that's great, that's a, that's a nice one and I'm actually intrigued and might read that myself. The last question, which is one that I like to ask all of our question, uh, all of our guests, is um, sort of a fun one, but I love to find out how people answer it. And that is, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island, and you can bring only one album with you. Don't worry about how you play that album, but which album would you pick and why? So, so when I read when I read this question, um, I actually thought, you know, is this becoming an outdated question? Because I don't listen to albums. Part of why anymore. I actually asked the I question because okay. a lot of people don't. Okay. I went through an exercise, I don't know, probably six months ago where a friend said, pick your 10 greatest albums from the 70s. And then I went on and did it for the 80s and the 90s. And it was interesting because, you know, someone would say, well, why didn't you pick this album? And it's like, I like five songs on that album, but I didn't really love the whole album. And you're right. I listened to tons of Spotify playlists and Pandora now. So we are getting away a little bit, although... I do have four or five albums that I really have loved that have come out with new artists recently. So that's why I ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd have to pick a Pixies album. I'm not sure which one to tell you the truth. It's, it's hard to pick, <laughs> hard to pick just one. Um, so I think that's about the best I'm going to be able well, to I, I love now. that. <laughs> and here's a little sort of, you know, funny sidebar. So I went to UMass Amherst, and two of the band members actually are from UMass. They sing about UMass. Yes, they do. Um, and so anyway, I have a warm spot in my heart for the Pixies and have listened to a lot of Pixies over the days. So, oh, excellent. Yeah, so getting just down to an album by the Pixies, much better than a Greatest Hits or... Some people pick Spotify playlists, et cetera. So anyway, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, this is Aaron Stroud. I'm the CMO of W2 Group, the host of the What to Know podcast show. I've been here today with Victoria, Dr. Victoria Romero, um, chief scientist at Next Century Corporation and speaker at tomorrow's uh, Countering Hate panel. So thank you. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? 
We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.